Oh Lord God in heaven, we come before you now, portion of your service where your word speaks to us. We ask that you would grant us grace, and I ask that you would grant me the grace that I need to teach your people the truth and to guide them in the ways of your word. In Jesus' holy and precious name, Amen. I'd like, to imagine, I'd like you to imagine just for a moment that you will die in a week. Exactly. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has found you guilty and sentenced you to death for a series of crimes that you did not commit. You're innocent of the charges, but you've been found guilty by a jury of your peers. The Supreme Court has rejected your final appeal. You're not guilty. You've been framed. And you find yourself on death row in a dirty, dingy cell. In that hypothetical situation, let me ask you this. What would you do with that week? Would you spend it watching television? Watching CNN? Arguing politics with um, the cellmates around you? No. What you would do is you would reach out to God. And then you would reach out to your loved ones. You would tell your loved ones all the things you wished you had said, but you hadn't. You would tell them over and over again that you love them. You would tell your children that if you had a chance, you would hit a reset button and do their childhoods all over again and spend every possible moment with them telling them that you love them. If you were married, you would tell your husband or your wife how much you love them. And you would warn all of them of the possibilities of the dangers of this world. That's what we would do. If we knew we had a week, it would sharpen our focus very quickly. That is what Jesus did in his earthly life. When he was about to die, in about a week or so, he went to his disciples and gave them a lengthy discourse that we find in John chapter 13 through 16, called the Upper Room Discourse. If you have a red-lettered Bible, it will be almost all red letters. And in that we have great teachings and great comfort. Remember, he is about to die. And he knows that the disciples will be confused. He knows that the disciples will be hurt. He knows that when they strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. He knows that Peter is going to betray him. And he knows that when Peter realizes that, that Peter's heart will be crushed. And we don't have the account of what the emotions were of the others, but we can pretty much figure it out. They deserted him when he needed them most. How would you feel if you were one of them? In John chapter 15, he gives them these words. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of his people, speaking. If the world hates you, 
You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. Let me ask you something. If the world hates Jesus so much, and if the world hates us so much, then why do we all too often fall in love with the world. Think about it at a human level. Gentlemen, if someone came up to you and said, I hate your wife. I hate your wife. I hate your children. What would you think of that person? What would your response be? Would you welcome them with open arms? Would you invite them into your home for dinner and a television show? Ladies, the same thing. I hate your husband. I hate your children. Kids, I hate your mother. I hate your father. I hate everything about you. What would your reaction be? Now, as Christians, we would have to turn the other cheek and say, I'm very sorry you feel that way, and I will pray for you. You must be filled with bitterness and bile. May the Lord have mercy upon your soul. Click your heels, turn, and walk away. But you would not have natural ooey-gooey feelings for them. And you certainly would not fall in love with them, I do not think. But that's what happens to us. Here's why. It's a faulty value judgment. All of our sins really come down to that. We make a faulty value judgment. We decide at some level in our minds that something is of value and we decide to choose it. Even if we know that it is fool's gold, we choose it for a time. It's a faulty value judgment. We believe and we think, even for a brief moment, that the world is better than the Lord our God, that what the Lord, that the, what the world has to offer is better than the Word of God, which we have professed from Psalm 19, is sweeter than a honeycomb and more precious than gold. We have to remind ourselves what James, the half-brother of our Lord, tells the New Testament church. To be friends with the world is to be the enemy of God. He uses the term adulterous. That's a prophetic term that you find in the Old Covenant. When the Old Covenant church 
when the Jewish church of old would run off to serve the Baals and the false gods, God would call them back with a prophetic voice, calling them adulterers. Because they had committed spiritual adultery by chasing that which is not God's. So you have to ask yourself, if Jesus is telling me the truth here, that the world hates him, and by the way, the world hates you. Imagine that. Someone comes up to you, I hate you. I hate you with every fiber of my being. There's nothing about you I like. You disgust me from head to toe. I hate the sound of your voice. I hate the sound of your footsteps. I hate the sight of you. I hate your car. I hate the carpet in your home. Everything. You're going to watch Monday Night Football with that person. You're going to watch a Penguins game with that person. You're going to invite that person to a Tupperware party. Corningware party. Silverware party. Whatever type of party you like. Go clothes shopping. Car shopping. Have a cup of coffee. I, I don't think so. Now, ironically, as Christians, we should say, you know what? I feel bad for you. Who hurts you that badly? When you calm down, I'll be glad to buy you a cup of coffee across a fairly large table so that you can't hit me so I don't have to turn my other cheek. And maybe I can help you because you're filled with such hate. Hate is something that kills people inside. We are called to hate, we Christians. We're called to hate evil. We're called to hate evil with all of our hearts. And we don't. The world hates us, and we embrace the world. Now, doesn't that sound crazy to you? If someone in the physical world actually hated you and wanted nothing but harm and ill will towards you and your loved ones, you would likely, I hope, avoid the person to protect your family and to protect yourself. But yet we embrace the world when the world openly and with glee relishes the hatred of us. Yes, they hate us. They hate us. We may not see it, but it is there if we would open our eyes. Now let's just for a few moments unpack what this passage of Scripture has for us. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus is reminding them that the hatred of the world has some type of chronological order to it. If we experience the hatred of the world as the disciples did, then we have to remember they hated Christ long before they got to me. They hated our, my Lord, and now they hate me. And then Jesus gives them an explanation. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, Jesus here is literally hearkening back to Genesis 3. And the war of the two seed lines. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the righteous and the seed of the evil one. The seed of holiness and the seed of sin. The people of the world are jealous of us. That's why they hate us. 
deep in their hearts, they know that we are special to God. That is why they hate us. They know that God has loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son into the world to die for the sins of His people, and they hate us because of it. They hate us because we are special to God. Remember when I was preaching through 1 Peter? Fairly far back. But the words are still there in 1 Peter chapter 2. That we're members of a chosen race. Or a royal priesthood. The world hates us because of that. The world hates us because God has plucked us out of darkness. And has shown his light upon us. And light and darkness do not coexist. When you're around somebody who is in a social situation and they are acting better than you, and I don't mean like they're acting better than you, but they actually are behaving in a more, I'm talking to the adults here primarily, they are acting more adult than you. And you realize, oh, I'm acting like a 10-year-old here and this person is acting as an adult. What do you feel? You feel, okay, I better get my game up to speed here. You feel a little bit ashamed. Do you not? You should. I should. When the world sees us, and they see the joy that we possess, and they see the holiness that we have through our faith in Christ, they hate us because of it, because they do not have that. When they see the peace that we have, the peace that passeth all understanding, they hate us because they do not have that. You hate people at an earthly level. Because of the things that they have that you do not have. Maybe you understand what I'm talking about if you grew up very poor and you saw rich people. And you didn't even know them. But there was a part of you that hated them. Or at least strongly disliked them. Why do they have the Cadillac? Hmm? Why do they have that house? I know that feeling. I know what it was like. To talk to people whose grandparents owned the factories in which my friend's parents worked. Oh, they have the nice house. They own the factory, but they don't live in our neighborhood. They're too good for us. Doesn't make you feel good when you're 12, 13, or 14. Makes you even angrier when you're 17 or 18. You realize it's unjust. We have been given great things by God, and the world hates us because of it. And sin reveals itself very, very openly when we look. The two seed lines revealed themselves very quickly. Cain and Abel aren't very far removed from Adam. What must Adam have felt as he was burying Abel, knowing that his other son Cain had killed him. Why? Because Cain was jealous of Abel because the Lord had accepted him. Because Abel had brought to him the proper sacrifice. That's what it all gets down to. We come to God with the proper sacrifice. Not of our own hands, but only to thy cross I cling. And the Lord accepts us. 
The world comes to God and tries to come to God with their own righteousness. And he says, you've made a good effort, but you didn't quite get there. Go away from me. I never knew you. And they hate us because we have gained entrance into the kingdom of God. And they have not. And we come into the kingdom of God, not because of our righteousness, not because of our good deeds. We don't get into the kingdom of God because of who we are. We get into the kingdom of God despite who we are. Because the good deeds of Christ have been given to us. And we come and we bring them to the Father. And we say, this is what I have. I have Jesus. I have Jesus. Is He good enough? I believe He is good enough. And the Father says, yes indeed He is. If you are coming to the Father with anything but Jesus, it's not good enough. Don't do it. Do not do it. Remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus here gives us a simple prophecy. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 3. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a, that's a prophecy. It's a promise. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus you will suffer persecution. It's a conditional thing, linguistically. So, what type of persecution are you suffering? Our brothers and sisters in other countries, um, they receive extreme persecution. It's difficult to gather the numbers. But you can go on the international web and look up a site called Open Doors. It's a Christian organization that somehow tracks persecution of Christians. It's obviously somewhat of an inexact science. And it won't come as any surprise that North Korea comes at the top of the list. It's illegal to be a Christian in North Korea. If it's illegal and they find you, persecution is going to happen. Saudi Arabia is number 10. I'm sure you're not surprised that a lot of Muslim countries are on the list. Ironically, Mexico and Colombia are on the list. Mexico and, Mexico and Colombia are filled with, filled with Christians. Catholic Church ran the place for centuries. It's a mystery to me. In America, we will suffer persecution, but it will not be a beheading. We will be ostracized. We'll be laughed at. We'll be viewed at as idiots. We believe that stuff. It's American persecution. You have to live a godly life. And if you live a godly life, the world will somehow show its disdain for you. They may not show it to your face. But I can assure you, they're snickering behind your back. They're snickering. They're laughing. There she goes, off to Bible study. What an idiot. There he goes, off to church. What a fool. They believe those fairy tales. Who could possibly believe that kind of stuff? That's what they say. That is persecution. But we have to remember from this passage that it's because we believe in Christ that we are hated. Christ tells us, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
You see, when we are persecuted, when we are looked down upon by the world, we're in good company. We're on the right side. This is what we have to understand. The world's hatred tells us that we're doing something right. The world's hatred of us tells us that we're on the right side. That we're with the good guys. That we're on the winning side. Now we have to be careful to distinguish between the hatred of the world that is given to us because we are Christians and the dislike that the world gives us because of our boorish behavior and sin. Okay? If you're at work and you're not really acting like a Christian and you're being a little bit mean or you're doing whatever and you're put down for that you're being lazy not doing your job and the boss gives you a hard time well, that's not Christian persecution that's actually if you're lazy and not doing your job and your boss is correcting you um, the, the Lord is using the boss to correct you there's a difference persecution and this hatred is talking about just because of our faith even if we do everything right they still hate us See, what we have to realize is that Jesus is telling us the truth. We're we're blessed. And the word blessed isn't what we think it means. It means to be made happy. Jesus is saying, be made happy when they persecute you and revile you and say all manner of things falsely about you for my sake. They lie about Christians. They lie. They tell untruths about us. Maybe you've heard it. I remember distinctly back in 1987. It's almost 30 years ago. Those, those original televangelist, televangelist um, scandals. Remember that? Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker. Right? I've sinned against you. That Remember those? Outside of liking the King James Bible in 1987, I had nothing to do with those men. I was not a member of the Assemblies of God. At that point, I was a hard-shell Baptist on my way to becoming a fairly outspoken Reformed Presbyterian, pretty far removed from those men. And my old friends said, you see, this is what you got. I said, you're branding me with them? I don't speak in tongues. I don't, I don't have an air-conditioned doghouse. This stuff disgusts me. No, you're the same. You're the same. You're just like them. Really? I, I am not. I could not convince them that I had nothing in common with Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker, no matter what I did. They lied. They reviled me. It bothered me at the time. Later, as I uh, grew up a little bit more in the Lord, I realized, wow, actually rather amusing. At the time, I was driving a 69 Plymouth Valiant that I needed to put transmission fluid in every single time I started the car or it wouldn't start. I literally prayed that the car would start. I did not have an air-conditioned doghouse. I did not have a lot of money. And when the car did start, I see this gigantic cloud of black smoke in back of me. That was my financial situation. I wasn't in cahoots with Jim Baker and Jimmy Swagger, but yet I was tarred and feathered. That's what they will do to us. They lie. And they lie, and they hate us, 
because of the word of God. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for sin. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. Word of God in the flesh. What he says as a man is what God says. The word hurts. Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, this is getting to the this is getting to the crux of the matter. When we speak to our unbelieving friends, and we speak to them about the word of God, and we tell them the truth of the gospel, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts because it tells us you're a sinner. You're on your way to perdition. Get right with God. Now, for those of us who have heard the call of the Spirit, that's the good news. We don't we hear the condemnation, but then we hear, oh, there's an escape clause. <coughs> Calvary. The resurrection is true. Easter is true. There's an escape clause. But when an unbeliever hears the word, they are cut. And they do not like what it says. Do you like when people say unpleasant things to you? The word of God to an unbeliever is very, very unpleasant. Because you see, an unbeliever wants to earn their way into God's good graces. And the word of God tells them, no. We hear Psalm 103 that says, The Lord has not dealt with us as our iniquities deserve. And we say, oh, thank you so much. An unbeliever hears that and says, well, what did I do that was so wrong? I know so many people that are worse than me. That's true. My friends, they hate us. You understand that? They hate us. They hate us with every fiber of their being. And some of them don't even know it. Some of them don't even know it. The God of this world has blinded their eyes so badly that they don't even know it. God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If they hate you, don't ever forget that they hated Christ first. And they hated him with all their might. And they killed him. And they're killing our brothers and sisters throughout the world. But if we have God on our side, who can harm us? No one. No one at all. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, we pray for those who hate us. We pray that you would save them. And we ask that you would give us the grace that we need to live a godly life and to bring glory to your name. And we ask this in your son's holy name. Amen.